Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on The Long Run is Robert Ang. Robert is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Vor Bio. The company is working on what I think you could call an elegant application of CRISPR gene editing for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. The idea here takes some explaining, but is actually pretty simple. Patients with acute myeloid leukemia typically get treated with adult stem cell transplants, otherwise known as bone marrow transplants. VOR seeks to make a single important change to those transplants. It uses CRISPR to delete the gene for making the CD33 antigen that appears on the surface of those cells. That's important because that marker is found on both blood-forming stem cells that reside in the bone marrow and on the runaway malignant cancer cells in patients with AML. The concept from scientific founder Sid Mukherjee at Columbia University is essentially, if you can delete CD33 from those critical blood-forming cells in the bone marrow, you can shield them from a powerful cancer drug that's aimed at the CD33 antigen. Pfizer's Mylotarg is the original antibody drug conjugate that works this way. It has been around 20 years, but its use has been limited for AML patients because even though it attacks cancer cells, it's also very toxic. VOR has shown in preliminary clinical trial results that it can successfully delete the CD33 antigen from adult blood-forming stem cells, that these cells can engraft in the bone marrow as usual to reconstitute a patient's immune system, and that it's safe. Then, importantly, in a few patients, the company has shown it can deliver the Mylotarg hammer and that it can do its job hitting the cancer cells that bear CD33 without damaging the newly transplanted blood-forming stem cells in the bone marrow. This is a case where CRISPR isn't the therapy itself for cancer, but it's an important tool that enables us to reimagine how to better use an existing drug. And VOR isn't stopping there. It's developing a CD33-directed CAR T-cell therapy that could be infused into these same patients after the transplant. Nobody has developed such a treatment because ordinarily it would have been considered way too toxic to the bone marrow. But it suddenly enters the realm of the possible if you can use CRISPR to shield those bone marrow transplants in the first place. It's possible to do that transplant first and then come in with that CAR T cell whammy a few months later and kill the remaining cancer cells that still bear the CD33 antigen. I wrote about this concept and VOR's early clinical trial results on Timmerman Report in November of 2023. Like many biotech entrepreneurs, Robert comes to this story after a winding path. He's an immigrant and a physician. When that didn't feel right for him, he explored the world of healthcare through management consulting and venture capital. He's clearly found something here that he's passionate about, and it shows in this conversation. Now, please join me and Robert Ang on the long run. Robert Ang, welcome to the long run. Oh, so great to be here. Thanks for having me, Luke. Well, it's good to actually do one of these recordings in person. I'm here at Vor Biopharma headquarters in uh, Cambridge. Um, so, and you have a lot of purple. 
on the walls, I notice. It is. Uh, actually, that was uh, the color scheme was chosen even before I got to Vore. Um, you know, just like a lot of things, uh, culture and other things like logos and uh, color schemes are established early on. Uh, but I love it and I totally embrace it. Great. Well, um, maybe we'll, we'll get into some deeper meanings of Vore and, and why you chose the purple later. But um, let's just start with a little bit about you. Um, where are you from? So, uh, that's a bit more of a complicated question. <laughs> a lot of people. So I, if people asked, um, where I'm from or where's home, I can't give them a straight answer because I was born in Malaysia, born, born in Kuala Lumpur. Um, my family emigrated out very early when I was, uh, less than two years old, um, to Perth, Western Australia. And I grew up there and then ended up uh, coming out to the U.S. in 2003. What did your uh, parents do for a living and what drew them to Australia? Yeah. So my mother is a physical therapist. Um, they call it physiotherapist. Uh, and uh, my dad uh, had a number of different uh, uh, careers that he explored, including teaching uh, and, and accounting. And... They were um, grew up in Malaysia, actually got married in the UK, but then went back to Malaysia. And when they had my brother and I, they were facing questions about where do we want to really raise a family. And Malaysia, even even today, is still uh, facing certain issues with, with uh, race um, and, and discrimination. And they felt it would be a better environment to raise the family in Australia, which happens to be directly due south of, of Malaysia, same time zone. Um, uh, but they pioneered, um, uh, the move because they had, uh, no job, no car, no house. They had, I think two family friends, but that was about it. And, uh, so they came with very little and established a whole new life in Australia. Were there any other, um, Malaysian expats in Perth? Uh, there were, um, we were definitely the first Angs in the phone book. I remember <laughs> looking that up. Um, uh, but uh, again, I think that back then in the um, mid seventies, um, uh, there was a, a much more welcoming environment for for immigrants in Australia. But it was still hard. Uh, they really had to still pioneer uh, a, a life all from scratch. So. Um what was the environment in Perth like? Was this, um, you know, a multiracial, multi-ethnic, uh, cosmopolitan kind of city or, or not so much? I think it's become more like that. Uh, back when I was growing up, uh, it was still um, somewhat parochial. Perth is a pretty major city. Um, there's over 2 million people there. Um, uh, so when it comes down to it, it's kind of like the size of Boston or, or greater. The, the, the trouble is it's actually the most isolated city in the world. It's six hours flight to Sydney, six hours flight to Singapore. There's really nothing in between. And so uh, there are particular dynamics where, you know, Perth is almost idyllic and, um, uh, a fantastic place to be growing up. The weather's amazing. So many things to do, especially outdoors. Um, but again, some of that parochial thinking and, you know, I, I faced some of that growing up. What kind of schools did you attend? Uh, all public schools. 
um, we, uh, you know, the, the, the education system is very good in Australia. And, um, yeah, I even attended a, a public university, uh, University of West Australia, which happened to actually to be the only university offering a medical degree. Um, but, uh, at that time, of course, there was no thinking that I should go anywhere else because it was right there close to home and a 10 minute bike right away. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So were you thinking that you would become a doctor early on? Very much. Um, so my, my parents and their wisdom, uh, as I was growing up, allowed me to shadow some of their family friends who are physicians. So, uh, you know, shadowed a urologist, ophthalmologist, um, you know, several, several general practitioners. And what I found is that I love science and I absolutely love patient care. And, and I thought that medicine is just diverse enough that I could find a specialty that would really hold my attention. And um, uh, that's where I felt a medical uh, degree was a very natural um, progression after school. Now, in Australia, at least when I was growing up, you could go straight into medical school out of high school. It's a combined degree. It's an MBBS degree. Um, you, you do essentially three years of basic science with three years clinical plus mandatory internship and then residency after that. Uh, and I had the fortune of um, going to med school and getting in when I was 17 years old. Wow. So you could actually become a doctor at a fairly young age. Yeah. I mean, I had an MBBS in treating patients and I was 23. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. So... Um that seems like a pretty uh, well-ordered path. Um, what kind of physician uh, were you thinking that you would be? So when I was going through med school, I, again, loved the science. And, and you know, we're still learning a lot about, um, you know, large molecules back there, which were a true revolution. Um, you know, the, the genomics re re revolution was coming as well. And, and so that science was fascinating. At the same time, one thing that was driving me and still drives me today is uh, tangible problems where you can see something, you can directly intervene, and there's almost an immediate changed outcome. And for me, um, I gravitated towards surgery as a result. Surgery is very straightforward, right? There's a hole where there shouldn't be a hole, so I'm going to sew up the hole and you make the difference. Um, or a lump where there shouldn't be a lump. And um, you know in the few hours that you've spent with that patient, you've made a big difference in their life. At the same time, you know, particularly for general surgery, which is what I was doing, uh, I was doing a lot of general as well as organ transplant surgery, uh, such as livers and kidneys. And... Um, you don't have that kind of surgery for fun. You are there because it, it's it's a life-changing po uh, point in your life. Um, uh, and it, it, there's significant surgical risks. Uh, at the same time, there's immense upside. And you could potentially lead a normal life after receiving a new liver or kidney. And that kind of transformative experience uh, for the patient uh, is very motivating for me as a, as a practicing uh, surgeon. So, as you say, I mean, this is a, a very intense and demanding and immersive line of work. And you see tangible results that can be immediate and quite satisfying when it works. Um, but then you didn't stay with medicine as, as a doctor. What prompted you to make the switch? So, 
I feel like I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a spiritual person. Like I, I grew up in a Christian household. I feel like I've I've had a personal relationship with God ever since I can remember. And I I came to a realization uh, during the end of med school and then beginning of surgical training where I felt that uh, I wasn't doing what God intended me to do with my life. I, I felt that God made me for a different purpose. And I wasn't fulfilling that purpose. It was an extremely disturbing thought because I trained my entire career at that point towards practicing medicine, knowing very little about anything else. And suddenly, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not for you, Robert. Um, it also happens that at that life stage, I, I just got married. Um, my wife, uh, who's also Asian, uh, ha has more traditional parents. And, you know, it's like, hi, honey, I, I feel like I need to leave my career. And by the way, <laughs> you know, uh, you should tell your parents who were very comfortable with you marrying a doctor that he might not be a doctor much longer. Um, and so it was disturbing on a multiple, multiple different levels. Uh, and I talked to a lot of different people and it was, um, that didn't make me feel any better, but this was happening in the beginning of 1999. And if you remember outside of biotech, the whole general environment was very frothy because it was the dot-com boom. But now, wait a second. What, what was it about medicine that didn't feel right? Because mm. some people listening to this might think, well, geez, I mean, doctors are doing God's work. Yeah. Healing the sick. Yeah. I mean, this is about as close as it gets. Okay, so uh, firstly, I, I don't fundamentally believe that any one career is more God's work than another, right? Uh -huh. um, as a, as a journalist, as a as a as a as a blogger, as uh, as a as a novelist, you I you can do as noble work as someone you know cleaning the bathrooms or someone um, running a company. I I, I feel that. Um, you can do that work with the same joy and the same purpose um, as anyone else. Um, I feel that certain people are have skill sets and may be called to different things. And uh, for me, that calling was not compatible with what I was doing at that point in time. So that's really what it was. It's not to say that I couldn't have been a good doctor. I think I could have been a good doctor, but I felt that I was made for something different. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But you didn't know quite what that was. No. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, Robert, you're wrong, but I'm not going to tell you what's right. Uh, <laughs> even more disturbing. And again, this is the tail end of 99, people doing all kinds of crazy things. Um, I had some friends doing management consulting, and you know, one of them convinced me that, hey, you might as well explore this because instead of just wasting your medical degree, you could um, think about medicine from the top down. And maybe you could change the lives of thousands of patients at a time instead of one by one. That was a very attractive thought, of course, very abstract, but very, very attractive. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was also the fact that uh, they, they thought they could, I could get a broad business exposure through something like management consulting. And then we could see where, you know, God leads me after that. So I interviewed at a bunch of places, um, ended up getting offers from a few, and and then uh, I started working at the Boston Consulting Group. 
still in Australia at this point? Still in Australia. I actually moved, uh, you know, my wife and I to, to Sydney, uh, and, uh, we established a new life there and the consulting life, uh, was, was interesting, uh, yeah. uh, but super educational. And what kind of clients did you work with or what kind of problems did you get exposed to in healthcare? So, uh, a lot of different clients. Uh, I remember we, I was involved in the merger between Pfizer and Pharmacia back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, biotech cases, uh, even medical services. Um, I did a big case for a radiology group. Um, but also, quite a number of non-healthcare cases. Uh, since I was still based in Australia, um, my first case was uh, an industrial latex paints supplier. <laughs> uh, you know, I did work in, you know, engineered wood flooring. I did work in uh, small business banking and I worked for Qantas for six months, which was amazing because I would never have gotten that exp exposure otherwise. And the business problems that I encountered uh, certainly are across industries. So that was uh, an awesome education. Yeah. And so did you found, find that this spoke to you, that, the, that you, were, you were lasering in on your, your bigger purpose? My bigger purpose. So I, I no, not necessarily, <laughs> but I learned several things. I learned that I love business. Um, I love the, the ability to harness uh, different business tools to solve problems. I did love this um, the, the intersection between medicine and business in particular. Um, I also learned, uh, importantly, that I wasn't meant to be a consultant either. So it, it did compel me to think about the transition, which is why I went to business school, and to find something else that could marry both business, business and medicine together. Okay, so where'd you go to business school? So uh, BCG kindly sponsored me to Columbia Business School in New York. Oh, so that's what brought you to the United States. That's exactly right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so you did a couple years of business school, and then what? So uh, in my naive thinking, a nice marriage between business and medicine is uh, biotech VC. Uh, <laughs> and you've had several of those on your podcast. You've written about it as well. And it's amazing because you can be exposed to all kinds of early stage ideas that look really amazing. You know, there's such potential for patients. Uh, you can use all kinds of different financial tools to help companies, uh, you know, at, at early stages of their life. Uh, and you also can move from project to project or company to company, um, where you see a, a whole range of different things and you have a landscape view that many others do not have. I love that part of VC. Um, and I was privileged to work with a couple of different firms, including Fraser Healthcare Ventures, um, where I could really understand best practice in the field. It also told me something um, and echoed a, a lesson from the previous part of my life. I like those tangible problems, like the hole that should be fixed as a surgeon. Um, and I... I feel like you know, as a surgeon, you literally get your hands dirty fixing those problems. As a VC, it's different, right? A lot of those problems you're solving at a board level. Mm -hmm. And while there certainly are very important problems to solve at a board level, you're not the one developing drugs. You're not the ones getting patients on trial or designing a molecule. You're leaving better qualified people to do that who are doing that 24-7, not swooping in, you know, once a quarter to, to get the update of the board. So 
I realized throughout that that stint in VC that I actually belong more on the operating side than on the venture side. Mm-hmm. And what years are we talking about? Uh, so I finished business school in 2005, uh, was do- even interning in VC during that period. And then 2007 is when I made the transition to the operating side. Okay. Okay. So you, you go into a company and now it's time to get your hands dirty and really learn. I mean, you've got this high level view of what's required to develop a new drug. Right. Um, but now you need to actually get in the trenches and make it happen day to day. Where did you, where did you do that? And, and what did, what was your beginning role? So, uh, I had a very unusual int- introduction to industry. I had invested twice while at Fraser with a company called Cadence Pharmaceuticals. I would say more in the spec farm space than in biotech, uh, but something that uh, was very exciting was commercializing an intravenous form of acetaminophen for hospital uh, use uh, in, in acute pain. And at the time, uh, Cadence was uh, in the midst of phase three trials and they needed someone to start their medical affairs function. What did I know about medical affairs? Very little. <laughs> I remember Googling <laughs> what is medical affairs and uh, really trying to wrap my head around, you know, investigator sponsored trials and sponsor and, and, uh, and grants and, and publications and, and MSLs and everything else. Alongside. Medical science liaisons. Exactly. Like be talking to doctors. That's right. Being a doctor helps because it, you can talk to these people. There's some understanding of who they are, how they think, how they think about patient care. Yes. You, you can, um, there's, you can build rapport. This is d- developing trust. This is, this is important to that job. And you look, you're very, being very kind because as you know, there are, uh, medical affairs professionals that have decades in industry who know what they're doing. I had zero clue, but the management team at Cadence knew me from those financing events and trusted I could figure it out. So we we started a, an MSL team, medical science liaison team, um, eventually uh, 12 field-based people, including N, as N2 directors. We, we ran publications in-house. We had over 50 uh, sponsored investigator, sponsored trials uh, we were involved with and, um, uh, grants and, and, and other things going through our shop. And I think we were a really important part of why the launch of Ophermiv, which is intravenous acetaminophen, was, was very successful. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. I may be misunderstanding this, but some people might look at this from the outside and think this is a branch of sales. Like your job is to sell IV acetaminophen, but medical science liaison is not exactly that. It is more about talking to the doctor about how you can actually solve the problem that the patient has in front of them. And IV acetaminophen may be helpful in that, but maybe something else is more appropriate in certain circumstances. So how, this, how did you confront these, um, how did you handle these conversations with doctors? So, so the Sunshine Act was still fresh uh, in the entire industry at the time, and, and really figuring out there needs to be a very clean delineation between sales and marketing and medical affairs. Medical affairs, you can almost think as um, like the IT support 
part of uh, or the you know the support part of 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 an organization so if you send people to sell computers okay we understand what that looks like you then send technical operators to help you implement those computers or to advise you which computers to buy or or, or use that's a different function um and so the msls though need to understand the entire sales process and what goes on in the company but at the same time, they know the delineation of their function, that it's much more around being true to the science and the medicine and to the clinician and the patient, secondarily to the company and the sales. It uh, isn't like, hey, we've got a Porsche here, and so everybody needs a Porsche. <laughs> yeah. If you have a hammer, you know, everything looks like a nail. Absolutely. I think that uh, there's, there's, there's a place for all kinds of different uh, approaches to pain management, not all of which are drug-related. And even within the, the medical field, uh, there's a role for that particular product. Okay. So um, you got some critical learnings in um, inside a company and what it takes to be an operator. And what happened, interestingly, is that the head of business development, David Sox, at the time, uh, decided to transition and, and move to a different company. Uh, I was very close to David. Um, he was a mentor for me. And um, suddenly, Cadence was without a head of BD. So they said, hey, Robert, why don't you do that too? So I was a very unusual head of BD and head of affairs, which is uh, almost unheard of. But that uh, also, I didn't really know what I was doing either, but I uh, figured it out. And um, uh, that was just a phenomenal experience, which then allowed me to extend my career primarily in business development and strategy and biotech. What was it about business development and strategy that suited you or appealed to you? So I, I love the fact that um, you need to have a strategic view as someone in BD, because you need to understand how certain transactions or partnerships can work to enhance what you're doing rather than hurt. And we've all heard stories about collaborations and partnerships that haven't been productive, that haven't been structured the right way, or haven't been done for the right reason from the get-go, which ends up significantly harming companies in the future. Uh, so I felt that consulting and uh, allowed me to give get a decent high-level view of what was going on, and then framing partnerships and deal structures in that context. Uh, and so that helped me at Cadence as well as other opportunities. And now let's fast forward a little bit. So you, you found that business development was a, a good match. D did you feel like this is again, um, like lining up with your purpose? Like now you're, now you're beginning to uh, fulfill God's will? I, I think so. Um, I felt that certainly me being hands-on um, working for companies that I truly believe in, making medicines that are making a difference in the clinic uh, to patients who are receiving them and, and getting be direct benefit, that was exactly what I needed to be doing. Now, BD, again, was somewhat still a little bit hands-off, but at least I was day-to-day -day thinking about all these opportunities and trying to build value in that role. And this was going to be a way in which you could benefit thousands of patients, ultimately, long-term. Absolutely. That was always, that's always been my mantra ever since I, I decided to leave medicine. That, that's that been my, my true goal. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so now you had a, a few other stops along the way. Um, 
I want to talk about one in particular right before you came here, Neon Therapeutics. Mm -hmm. um, for those not familiar, what was Neon Therapeutics trying to do and what was your job there? Yeah. So Neon Therapeutics uh, is a company that was founded by Third Rock Ventures. I, I, you know those folk well. Uh, they found great companies. This was based on science uh, from the Faber uh, and the Broad Institute, where it, it really came off the principle that cancer mostly looks the same as healthy cells, but there's a small uh, number of epitopes or, or immune targets that look different, uh, all based on mutations within the tumor. So those mutations can result in these, uh, what they call neoantigens, which are new targets that were not existing previously uh, in the patient, but only arise because of the cancer mutations. Some of these uh, might be driver mutations that really drive the activity of the tumor. Most of them are actually bystander mutations. They just happen, uh, and uh, but still are potential immune flags that allow you to pursue the tumor without killing healthy cells. And that's been the, the problem that's dogged cancer from the get-go, that unfortunately, because cancer arises from us, 99.999% of the time, they look like healthy cells. And so what is the way that you can differentiate these cells from um, healthy cells? One way is to pursue these neoantigens based on mutations. And these are truly unique to each individual patient. Uh, most of the time, yes. So we were pursuing high mutation rate disease, which is often found, say, in melanoma or, or non-small cell lung cancer, smoking-associated cancer, uh, because these carcinogens end up stimulating a lot more uh, mutation than typical tumors. And so the, the thinking here is that you could sequence someone's tumor, compare that sequence against their normal sequence, their healthy sequence, and um, when you do a comparison, you can detect what the mutations are. And then on top of that, you have this very complicated series of algorithms that determine which of those mutations end up getting expressed and which actually end up uh, getting presented on MHC molecules and then uh, which ones actually are immunogenic. And um, so those algorithms... Um, there's a lot of machine learning that goes on. They're surprisingly accurate, <laughs> uh, I gotta say. And then um, we can actually test uh, to stimulate immune responses in a number of different ways. And the way that Neon chose to do is use peptides alongside an adjuvant to use as a cancer vaccine uh, for patients with high mutation rate disease. If you like listening to The Long Run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my coverage of the most interesting startups in biotech, my weekly front points column, and commentary from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. Just hearing you describe this, there's a lot of work oh, happening yeah. happening here to get us toward what you could call personalized medicine mm -hmm. or individualized medicine. It's, uh, you know, the traditional pharmaceutical industry, at least um, the way a lot of people have thought of it, is trying to create something like a, um, you know, a single hammer yep. to hit 
the the common nail. Yes. And wouldn't it be great if everything was like HER2 positive breast cancer, right? Where that one thing is present on a lot of people's cancer cells and we just make one drug that hits that, knocks it down and cures the cancer. Well, biology is more complicated than that in, in the vast majority of cases. Wouldn't that be nice? But we can't do that. That's right. And it, it even if you think about the fundamental biology, if cancer was super easy to target, um, would that cancer even exist? Like if, if KRAS was immunogenic, I think that a lot of cancers just simply wouldn't exist because your body would recognize that's a KRAS mutation, I'm going to wipe it out, and any of those cells, cancer cells are gone. Um, so I think there's a reason why cancer looks the way it does, and that it's almost like it's intelligent, right? It kind of avoids things or, 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 or escapes things um, that when you th just when you think you've got it, it figures a way out. Um, but new antigens are one way where, look, it's different. Let's kill anything that looks different. Um, it is very complicated, though. Uh, Neon and now BioNTech, who, who, who purchased Neon, are pursuing that approach. Data looks very interesting. Uh, we know Moderna has pushed the, uh, you know, forward that approach as well and, and now is in later phase trials. So I think this approach, while complicated, um, that personalized approach uh, could well make a huge difference for patients. Okay, so what years were you at Neon? Uh, this was uh, from uh, 2015, I guess, until 2019. Okay, and your role was chief business officer. So strategy, business development, working closely with the CEO. Yeah, I was uh, at the second C-level there. Um, in typical Third Rock fashion, they incubate these companies. Carrie Feffo was the interim CEO, but roughly a day and a half a week. And so, you know, I, I was there just forming the company, you know, um, uh, just getting things off the ground, doing everything from getting a supplier online to corporate strategy to investor presentations to taking out the trash. <laughs> and um, it, how did it end? So, Neon ended up getting uh, bought by uh, BioNTech. Uh, it, it was a complicated story because uh, back then the clinical trial that we entered was not a randomized trial. Uh, it was where patients with melanoma or lung cancer could get this vaccine made. You treat them, you would follow them out. Um, you could determine all kinds of things immunologically. So you could say, you know, do they have new T cells that, that exhibit this de novo immune response to the epitopes that you're administering? Yes. You know, can you even detect some of these T cells in tumor? Yes. Uh, are you seeing some clinical responses as measured by resist or other, other, other methods? Yes. Um, but at the same time, you're dosing this in combination with something. We're dosing it with PD-1s. Um, even though some of these patients may well have failed a PD-1 before, how do you know that patient would have wouldn't have otherwise responded to a second round? We don't know. Uh, so it was a little more bit more complicated to tease apart: were we making a true difference or not? And that's a lesson learned <laughs> in terms of my career. But that being said, the the, the science was fundamentally sound. Uh, BioNTech was really thinking about how to expand their capabilities beyond what they had built themselves, and that marriage just made the, made a ton of sense. Yeah, yeah, because they can make the the mRNA yes. of, of that antigen that you want to show to the immune system 
this is the thing to attack. Right. And, it's a, and it is specifically that thing on the surface of that patient's cancer cells. Exactly. Stimulate the immune system to fight that and, yes. and not the healthy cells. That's the hope. And yeah. uh, that's what they're demonstrating now, hopefully in later stage trials. Yeah. Um, okay. So neon essentially goes away, gets absorbed into BioNTech. And what was going to be next for you then? So... I developed this passion in oncology, right? And when you think about impacting the lives of thousands of patients, impacting the lives of cancer patients, to me, is even a different level. Um, cancer has touched us all in some way, um, and in, in, for certain people in a, in a very traumatic way. And I feel cancer is almost like the epitome of evil. It's an evil that even comes from within us, right? But it's twisted and mutated in a way that's killing us. So if there's something we can do to tackle this, that would be just amazing. Uh, when I uh, with, was thinking about my next step, I think the first thing I was thinking about is, do I want to be a CEO and why? And I felt that if I wanted to be a CEO because I wanted to be a CEO, that's like the worst reason in the world. And I came back to the principle that we talked about before, that if, if I feel like my purpose is to impact the lives of thousands of patients, do I feel that this next role will allow me to do that in a better way compared to what I was doing at that point in time? And that's ultimately what I determined, that I felt that um, VOR as an opportunity, as, as CEO, allowed me to have a more direct a more direct input into potentially changing lives of those thousands of patients. How did you first learn about VOR? So as I was exploring uh, the next steps after NEON, uh, I met a ton of, ton of people, including Kush Palmar at 5AM Ventures, um, introduced by Deb Palastrand, who's also there. And VOR really resonated for me. It, it, I, firstly, I'd also touched cell therapies at Neon, and I loved the promise that cell therapies can provide, unlike any other modality. The second is, comes down to this question around tumor targets. Because as you know, Neon was all about finding those few neoantigens that might be different. At VOR, VOR wasn't re relying on that fact for AML. You cannot, because actually AML is largely low mutation rate. Acute myeloid leukemia. Acute myeloid leukemia, uh, which, is a, which is a bone marrow and blood cancer um, uh, that affects all stages of life, particularly elderly people, and um, is terribly treated right now. Um, and so this acute myeloid leukemia um, it does express antigens, uh, common antigens, uh, very strongly, such as CD33, which is what we're targeting. The trouble is that your healthy bone marrow does as well. And so any people wanting to make the hammer that hits the nail of CD33 is going to kill your healthy bone marrow. And unfortunately, that's not compatible with survival. We've all seen the revolution behind CD19 CAR-Ts and BCMA CAR-Ts that tackle B cells or, or plasma cells, and they work amazingly well, firstly because the target is highly expressed in the cancer, but by some unique biological trick, we don't happen to really need B cells or plasma cells that much, and we can actually be pretty healthy without that. 
That's not the case with bone marrow. So you can make a cell therapy that just kills everything that bears CD19 or BCMA on the surface and you know, wipe out the cancer and basically um, patient can, can live. Yeah, and patient just, can live and actually live a relatively normal life. Yeah. Um, for AML, acute myeloid leukemia, that's not the case. Bone marrow supplies all the cells necessary in your blood circulation that are necessary for, for survival. And so you cannot wipe out these cells without doing um, distinct harm to the patient or, or putting their life at risk. And that's been the problem for blood cancers, you know, for, for particularly for myeloid cancers like AML um, since the dawn of time, that you cannot kill the cancer without killing your own bone marrow. So what was the new idea at VOR? So this new idea came from Sid Mukherjee, who is a fellow author like you. Um, Emperor of All Maladies is kind of like the, the, the history of cancer, and he's written other books as well. And he sold a few more books than I have. <laughs> you're both very well written. Um, and his innovation apparently happened while he was sitting on the beach in Mexico. And he was he was thinking, you know, how can you tackle this problem in an orthogonal way? Instead of you know working on the cancer cell, what happens if you worked on the healthy cell? And you could potentially hide the healthy cell from treatment, therefore make this treatment inherently cancer-specific. Uh, this was through also the initial uh, excitement around CRISPR gene engineering that you could actually manipulate the genome of cells um, in very um, specific ways. And his thinking is, what if I manipulated the, the expression of this protein, CD33, which is, again, essentially an ideal AML target, aside from the fact that it's expressed on healthy cells. So what if you could silence this by silencing the gene? Would you be able to protect these healthy cells and therefore expose the cancer uh, in ways that otherwise wouldn't have been possible? And he was able to push this through, you know, in vitro and in vivo studies that showed a lot of promise. Now, this is an important point I want to ask you a little bit more about with the use of CRISPR. Mm. So a lot of people have heard about CRISPR and they think about it as uh, in, it, there are lots of different ways it can be applied uh, to medicine. Um, people are probably more familiar with like this gene editing, like if you need to delete a specific gene for, say, sickle cell. Yeah. You can uh, form normal blood cells and basically cure the sickle cell. It's amazing. It's remarkable. It's just got approved by the FDA. Yes. Uh, that's a, a form of cell therapy that just gets reinfused back. Patient produces new blood the rest of their, uh, their life uh, without the sickles. <laughs> um, but CRISPR has so many more potential applications. Uh, across medicine for the discovery of small molecules or, or antibodies too. It, it can be sort of like a technology in the background. Almost, I, I, I'm curious, I've been playing with an analogy. I'm curious if you think this applies at all, but like, it's almost like GPS for, <laughs> that enables your Google Maps to get you from door to door. I mean, GPS is in there in my phone, helps give me directions, yeah. but Somebody needs to develop Google Maps so that I can actually get here. It's a good way of thinking about it, Luke, because CRISPR is a tool. It's a tool that enables something to happen, but what are we actually doing with that, right? And the the advent of um, of of uh, 
CRISPR engineering and the sickle program was life-changing for um, all these patients with thalassemia and, and, and sickle cell cancer. It was a very specific application, at least in the case of CRISPR vertex, to the potential of editing a BCL11A gene, which allowed the fact that you could upgrade, you know, fetal hemoglobin and, and therefore, you know, restrict sickling. Um, I think that the question is, what else can you do with it? Because the way you need to think about it is thinking about what the end is, not what the means to an end is. And that's the way that Vol was always built, that we can um, look at the tools available to us, but choose the best tools to enable the end, which what we hope is a bone marrow that's now completely protected against that targeted therapy. And yet the patient still has the cancer with the CD33 antigen on the surface that you can attack. You can attack it now. That's right. Without harming that healthy bone marrow. That's exactly right. I mean, um, you know, might be a, 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 you know, a a dirty analogy, but when, um, uh, folk were thinking about engineering seeds for uh, agriculture, and you could make a seed that is resistant against Roundup or other, you know, pesticides or herbicides. Uh, that revolutionized agriculture in the way we understand it today. Now, of course, it's very natural to think: yes, of course, you can make a seed better. You can make it essentially superhuman in a way, bulletproof against um, what would normally harm the plants in terms of the Roundup or, or pesticides. Why not do the same thing for humans? Like, what if we could make a superhuman bone marrow that's treatment resistant? Well, so let's talk about how you do this. So the a patient with AML yes. um, comes in, and the standard treatment is the uh, the bone marrow transplant. That's right. The, uh, and so they need those cells um, from a donor um, get edited yes. with CRISPR. That's right. To delete the CD33 antigen that that is there on the surface. That's correct. And then you reinfuse those cells, hopefully, so that they reconstitute the patient's bone marrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then, then what? And then we are giving them targeted therapies, um, such as Molotog, which is an antibody drug conjugate. So it's an antibody with a payload on it, and that antibody looks for CD33, and it delivers a payload that's toxic to cells. Uh, Molotog was actually the first ADC ever approved by FDA, um, and is known to be effective, but incredibly toxic. It's been around for 20 plus years. <laughs> that's right. A lot of people have forgotten about it. They, they have, and I think they've forgotten about it because it has baggage. I mean, yes, they had liver toxicity early on, they figured that out, but... Unfortunately, it is incredibly heme toxic. So patients become very cytopenic, that their blood counts drop dramatically after receiving Molotov, and they could get sicker from that than from, you know, the cancer cure that it, that it promises. But suddenly, if the patient no longer has the CD33 on their healthy bone marrow, now you can give Milotarg, and it's not going to hammer their bone marrow. That's right. And that's exactly what we've done in our first clinical trial. So we have released data from eight patients now showing we can dose Molotog multiple times in these patients where it doesn't seem to really touch their blood system. Their, their, their cell counts still remain healthy, but at the same time, we can attack their cancer cells in ways otherwise wouldn't have been possible. 
Well, let's talk about your initial clinical experience, because we talked about this last fall. Mm. Um, you presented some data at a medical meeting. I think it was in November. Mm. Um, what were what were the key questions for you and your team in your initial clinical trial? And what did you learn? Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll talk about what we learned before that, which sets the stage for the clinical data. So CD33, again, is this gene that is very upregulated in, in AML. Um, it's also highly expressed in, in normal um, cells. But one first question is, what the heck does that do? Because if we delete it out and suddenly these cells don't function properly, we're in the whole world of hurt. CD33 is part of a family called Siglec proteins. Uh, it's quite a large family of 14 sort of proteins. In fact, there are nine proteins that look like CD33, uh, probably similar in function. They do something in terms of cell-cell interaction, might have some immune um, um, signaling uh, responsibilities, but no one could really pin down exactly what it did. So we had to ask the important questions. If we delete it out uh, and test the function of these cells, either in vitro or in vivo, does it look the same? And the answer seemed to be, yeah, it does look the same. You can also ask a very interesting genomic question, which is, are there people randomly walking around amongst us who have never expressed CD33? And the answer is yes. Roughly one in 10,000 people don't express CD33. So clearly those people are healthy and fine and doing without it. So maybe there's a world where they have a negative bone marrow and still are pretty healthy. That's a really good um, green light uh, when you have a human knockout. Yeah, <laughs> that, exactly. That, that, like if you get rid of this, people are still going to be okay. That's right. And so that, but the experiment that we couldn't run is that if you or I had expressed CD33 our entire lives, suddenly we see we receive a bone marrow that does not express CD33. What happens then? And that was the primary question we asked in this clinical trial. Can we dose patients with this 33 negative bone marrow and have these cells engraft, which is migrate to the bone marrow and start proliferating like any regular bone marrow transplant would do? And does it does do, does it look the same? And that's something we've de now demonstrated in eight patients. The body's not going to reject it or develop graft versus host or some of these other things that people worry about. Correct. Uh, and we're, we're, we're looking like a hawk on every patient that comes through. And so far, um, these patients are doing, re doing really well. And secondly, can we dose myelotoxic to these patients and as a result of the edit that we've done, truly protect their blood system from the toxicities they normally experience? And that answer seems to be, yeah, so far that looks entirely uh, accurate as well, that we can do what you know we've, we've aimed to do. You're giving them myelotarg and they're not suffering the usual myelotarg toxicities. That's correct. How many patients? So we're, uh, we've disclosed eight patients in our, our last data disclosure, and uh, we're enrolling very strongly right now uh, with, with more patients receiving even higher doses of myelotarg. And you're doing repeat doses and with higher doses and still not seeing the toxicity? Well, I need to be careful about what I disclose, but that is uh, one direction that we're moving uh, today. Correct. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, 
have you been able to see improved outcomes yet for these AML patients who have, as you said earlier, I mean, a really grim diagnosis? Yeah. So that is the next step first, Luke. It's a critical next step because it's one thing to run the scientific experiment and validate a lot of the preclinical data around engraftment and protection. But now can we truly change the lives of patients? Again, coming back to my principle, right? Is it can we now show signs that we have the potential to change the lives of thousands of patients? Let's start with one or two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, being able to show that we can uh, shift their disease trajectory. And we can do that multiple ways. So one way is we can keep treating patients and they don't relapse. That's interesting. But of course, that could have also happened by chance. We also know Molotov's not the perfect drug, even in the relapse refractory setting has a CR rate of roughly 26%. Um, and so we know that some patients are going to relapse on this study. But can we do something about that relapse? Because this relapse is still in the context where their bone marrow is negative for CD33. So can we either use a higher dose of Molotov or the CAR-T, which we'll talk about, and cause a dramatic change in their disease burden? And so that's really what we are looking to generate this year. So what you have here is an, a different process, a, 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 like a, a one-two punch, or um, it's not one thing, really. You're, you're editing those cells for um, transplantation. They engraft, and then you come in with a different kind of treatment. And that could be myelotarg. It could be somebody else's antibody drug conjugate aimed at CD33. Yep. Um, or it could be a CAR-T therapy that's designed to lock in and kill cells that bear the CD33 antigen. That's right. It could even be other targeted modalities like um, by specific um, uh, molecules that engage T cells. Um, it could be radio ligand therapeutics, um, anything that would be targeting that particular protein, CD33. You've primed the patient to withstand um, another round of treatment, and you've rendered the CD33-bearing cancer cells vulnerable. That yeah. is our hope. I mean, it, it's not unprecedented at, at the FDA, right? So there are drugs that uh, say, you know, GCSF protects from febrile neutropenia, you know, uh, after giving chemotherapy, or uh, there are drugs that try to prevent oral mucositis after, you know, radiation therapy. So there are there are precedents where you are trying to protect something, protects against the toxicity of a later therapy. This is the first time anyone's been doing it with a stem cell therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy around developing your own CD33-directed CAR-T cell therapy? Because nobody has successfully developed such a CAR-T against this antigen for some of the reasons you mentioned earlier. Like, it would be too toxic. <laughs> That's right. And we've seen that many times, right? Not just with CAR-Ts, but with even, even um, by specifics or with uh, ADCs, where you just run straight into this toxicity and there's no way out. With the CAR-T, we think that the CAR-T should be even more potent than an ADC and potentially more target-specific, but you still have to solve that toxicity issue. So we, we thought that eventually that 
potency, that target specificity is important for patients, which is why we're developing this ourselves. And we think that we have that unique ability to combine it with the Tremcel approach, with the gene-deleted CD33 HSCs, and um, aim for cures for these patients. I don't use that C word lightly. Uh, we think that a, a, a possibility for cure is where you've got a treatment-resistant bone marrow uh, that is laughing in the face of a targeted therapy. And you now have a living drug, which is a CAR T circulating for months or years in these patients, sniffing out anything to do with cancer. And in, in my simplistic mind, that is a situation that's compatible with long-term remissions or cures. Now, as a business, uh, how will VOR be set up to um, to accomplish these ends? Are, are you going to have your own little manufacturing suite where the doctors uh, send in the cells to have them CRISPR edited, and then you know you um, you package up the the CAR T cell from those same donor cells later on when when it's time for them to to get the the CAR T. So we have already actually established a GMP manufacturing facility in this building. In fact directly below where we're seated, there's a GMP facility that is making clinical product for us. And it's a true privilege to have built this and have our own employees run this facility, uh, making product that is touching the lives of patients directly. As to what we'll do eventually from a commercial standpoint, we have to figure that out later. We're still in phase one, of course. Uh, but the vision here is that what we're doing is not that difficult in terms of cell manipulation. We're doing a simple, the simplest edit you can do, which is a cut that results in somewhere between 70 to 90% efficient deletion in that gene, um, where we have plenty of cells that we can use as a stem cell transplant. So that's, that's the HSC and the CAR T approach is a simple lentivirus insertion of the CAR. Um, to healthy donor cells, uh, which is a difference for what we're doing. But again, it's a very simple manufacturing process. And you're going to build that yourself? So again, I think we have to think about eventually what we'd want to do on a commercial basis. I think there's multiple ways to skin that cat. One is doing it ourselves, of course. Another is doing it through a partner or a CDMO. And we'll have to figure that out as time goes on. Okay, you do have time to figure that out as you are still in phase one. Correct. Um, now, we're in a tough environment for, mm. for biotechnology. In I, have, I haven't heard that. <laughs> Put mildly. Um, investment uh, has, has soured on a lot of uh, cool new technologies that have potential to change patients' lives. Um, how are you... I mean, and yet you the, what you're trying to do is going to be fairly expensive. Yes. Um, how do you navigate this uh, situation and keep uh, keep your eye on the ball toward that the ultimate products you want to develop? So I think an overall guiding principle for us is, again, something that's common to, to, to the company as well as to me personally, which is if we do well by the patient, we will do well as a company. Um, doing well by doing good is, is how we phrase it. Uh, We've been faithful to the patient uh, in, in the way that we've generated great science that can generate great drugs and that we push into the clinic now, hopefully generating great data. 
Uh, and that's the same principle that we've followed from a corporate basis, even despite the, the difficulties we've seen in the financial environment. One thing that has unusually harmed cell and gene therapy is that we are high cost. Uh, it's not cheap to make this versus pressing a pill. Uh, but that being said, we need to aim for those transformative outcomes that will justify that cost on the back end. And that's another guiding principle that we've tried to follow here. We've had the fortune of very supportive investors uh, who, who've invested through an A round, B round, IPO, and our first follow on uh, about this time last year. And um, throughout this, we're well capitalized. And importantly, we are poised to generate those outcomes that will really show the promise that we can shift the tra trajectory of these patients and, uh, and really change their lives in terms of their cancer. You've got enough money to weather the storm. We believe so. Um, and supportive investors to, to, to uh, go along for the ride, as well as those data outcomes that will bring those investors back and new investors to the table. Do you have a, an aspiration in terms of cost? Like, uh, I don't know, to get it to 100,000 a patient or less uh, in order to reach the largest number of patients possible? Because we have a problem with access yeah. on CAR T-cell uh, car therapies. We, we do. Um, and I think there are companies trying to tackle that. In fact, one of Sid Makaji's companies, Immuniel, is bringing CAR-Ts to the third world, which is amazing. We've always kept in mind that we need to make this simple and low cost as much as possible. In fact, we've had a cost of goods project that's been running for over two years here at VOR, looking at everything from reagents to the process to try to make this affordable. So that's absolutely an aspiration of ours. Firstly, we have to demonstrate that it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When do you think you'll have the, the kind of results that you need to go to the FDA? Uh, that's gonna take a little bit more time. I think firstly, we need to show that we can change this disease trajectory. And once we've shown that, we can then devise the right clinical experiment for that pivotal study that allows us to generate data for us to go to a BLA. So I think one step at a time, uh, at the same time, I think we're right on that track to generate that data. But ultimately, you are talking about the potential for cures, for acute myeloid leukemia to start, which affects something like 30,000 people in the United States alone. That's right. I mean, if we don't target cures, um, we should go home because what we're doing is complicated. It's cell therapy based. Um, it's using potent therapies that can make people sick. But at the same time, we want to bring the same promise that CAR-Ts have shown for uh, in, in B-cell or plasma cell cancers and bring that to AML. And we don't think there's a way of doing that without an approach like VORS. Uh -huh. You said earlier that you're a spiritual person and seeking your, your purpose. Um, just feel like you're in the right place. Yeah, Luke, <laughs> very much. I mean, I, I I love waking up every day and going to work. I, that's a nice litmus test for me because I feel that, unlike my experience as a surgeon, where I was literally going to work and feeling physically ill because I thought I was not doing what I was meant to be doing, here I feel that this is exactly what my calling is. Now, whether it works or not, that's going to be up to the science. 
but I think we've done all the right things to enable this, and I think it has all the promise in the world uh, to co-patients with AML. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Robert Ang, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. It's been such a pleasure, Luke. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.